I'm here in the Psychic Matters studio today with Karen Francis McCarthy. Karen is a progressive spiritualist medium, a public speaker and published author. She was formerly a major media political journalist and war correspondent. And one day she was on an assignment when she received the terrible news that Johan, her partner and fiancé, had died suddenly in New York. Numbed by the tragedy, she spiralled into a deep state of grief about never being able to communicate with Johan again, until she began to experience a series of remarkable events and incredible happenings which had no logical explanation. Karen is very sceptical by nature and she sought logical explanation after logical explanation until eventually the only explanation she could find that everything that had been happening was that Johan was indeed communicating with her from the spirit realm. She's recently written a book about her experiences called Till Death Don't Us Part, which is a transformational story of one woman's extraordinary journey through tragedy to awakening to the knowledge that life and love never dies. Karen, tell us about your incredible book. Uh, Well, I wrote the book because I had actually been prompted to write it by a number of people. It's an account of events that happened about 10 years ago, just after my fiancé died. I, at the time, was a journalist and I was just back, hadn't been back from Iraq that long. And I was down in the American South, in the heartland, doing some interviews for my first book, which was um, part of a cultural outreach for the Northern Ireland peace effort. And I was uh, doing some research on that, interviewing some people down there. When I got a message to say that my fiancé, I got a call to say my fiancé had just suddenly died in New York City. At the time, I just was in, you can imagine, a complete state of shock. And I decided to stay in Virginia. And I've been, somebody had this big hulking house that needed a house sitter for the summer. And so I decided just to stay there in that house and not bother. I just couldn't face coming back to New York. While I was there in this house, it was just me and a cat there for the summer. While I was there in this house, um, mostly I just wanted to sort of get into bed and sleep, you know, just was wandering about in the days really as, as you do in those early stages of grief. When um, all sorts of odd things started happening in this house, you know, like invisible things, um, you know, the bed creaking in the middle of the night when I was fast asleep or as things touching me or, uh, you know, shapes appearing in front of my eyes and odd smells and sounds and all sorts of all sort of thing. And you know, initially, it's the sort of thing you you know. I think I was an absolute. I was an atheist and, a, and an absolute skeptic at the time. I I had been raised Catholic, but I'd run away from the Catholic Church at seventeen when I got out of secondary school or high school, and never looked back. And the only time I'd had any kind of spiritual practice at all was um, I had practiced Zen for about 10 years or so. But the thing about Zen is it's non-theistic. So, you know, there's no dogma, there's no priestly caste, there's none of that sort of thing. There's no belief in the afterlife. There's, you know, there's none of those sorts of religious trappings. So it's actually quite non-theistic. When I'm stuck down here now in Virginia a few years later and all these odd things are happening, I'd absolutely 
no explanation. Um, and I started getting very anxious that maybe there was something had gone wrong with me. You know, that grief, this was gr grief induced hallucinations or something, which very much concerned me because I've always been a very strong minded individual. And to suddenly have all of these things happen without any explanation was just very, on top of the grief, was very worrisome. So I started down there. Um, one thing sort of led to another. You know, helpful people got put in my path, which I didn't see it was helpful people being put in my path at the time. I just saw it as people I was bumping into. And um, one actually, ironically, was a Catholic priest. And I kind of ended up washing up onto his doorstep one morning, um, bawling, crying, talking about all these crazy things that were happening and how I feared I was losing my mind. And, uh, and he said, no, no, these are signs. Lots of parishioners have had signs from loved ones to let them know they're okay when they pass on, which was mind boggling to me. But it started me on a journey that's, that's the, takes up the first third of the book, basically, of trying to figure out what is going on. And I ended up at the Edgar Casey Center in Virginia and at a spiritualist church and was getting messages and, you know, and eventually through a whole sequence of events, which I won't go into because I don't want to give it away, um, which brings us up to the end of the first third of the book. Eventually, after a lot of resistance and disbelief, eventually the penny dropped and um, it became quite apparent to me that the only explanation for everything that was going on was that consciousness survives death. And so for the rest of the book, I came back to New York and, I'm, and I was trying to sort of figure out then, how do you live with this knowledge? How do you live? You know, what I started also noticing was that other people, I could sit with a friend and a relative of theirs would pop in, you know, from the higher side. And, uh, and I started noticing this happening more and more. Um, and so the rest of the book is really just trying to come to terms with the fact that my fiance was still uh, alive in spirit form and how we were going to manage to continue a relationship and re, you know, relearn a relationship in this context and how this relationship could continue in that way. So there was a lot of that, a lot of learning how we are still part of each other's life. And then a lot of, um, you know, just sort of coming to terms with the whole concept of the fact that total strangers were able to communicate with me to give pass along messages to their to other total strangers so a lot of it was involved in that in terms of trying to just come to accept that and come to terms with that as a skeptic that was a very very hard thing to do you know and just sort of navigate through through life it was very very transformational so it ended up being a very very different life so a lot of friends that i used to have sort of fell away a lot of new friends came along. I stopped, you know, I used to be a political journalist. I stopped, I lost interest in politics. I started looking more at sort of spirituality and belief systems and meaning and purpose and things like that. So it was definitely a massively life-changing event. And that's what, that's what I spend the book talking about. But the fun part of the book is that it's actually, and you've read it yourself, um, I wrote it to be... It's, it's obviously, it's all true. It's a memoir. So it's technically considered nonfiction, but I wrote it to try to read like fiction so that it, it's, although everything is true in it, I tried to write it so that I was actually capturing each moment uh, and describing all of these moments as they happened uh, in a way that the reader then could become part of the story. So at no point in the story is it written like, oh, this is me 10 years later looking back and saying, 
you know, it's written in a way that as these events are going along, I don't know what's happening. The reader doesn't know what's happening. And we're both sort of following along together. I sort of felt that it would be more interesting uh, for the reader to sort of be part of the journey than have me talk at them about, oh, this is what I've just got. You know, and it was actually a decision I had to make at the beginning when I decided to eventually sit down and write this book, was do I write it like a researcher or a journalist and just sort of present my findings? Or do I actually do write a creative nonfiction book which actually describes the journey and the drama and the emotions and the grief and the angst and the intimacy of the relationship and the sort of personal transformation that comes as a result of it as it's happening um, and then just sort of let the reader read it and then just present the story and let them then decide for themselves if it's something that they want to believe in or they can believe in so I'm sort of really just was trying to sh- sort of share the experience if you if you get me. You very very kindly Karen sent me a link to read it prior to this interview so one of the things Karen that really stood out for me your decision at the beginning when you were saying whether to write it as a piece of journalistic writing or whether to write it as creative non-fiction I really felt as if when I was reading it I was in your mind I was you I was all right beside you and at the very beginning you've already mentioned that you were in an older house uh, at the very beginning after your fiance died. And as I was reading that, I could, I could literally smell the house. I could see the um, decor. I could feel myself walking across that carpet or I, I was with you under the duvet mm. for those early times when you explained that, that initial process of grief and how you were come starting to, um, just understand a process what had just gone on for you so I just think it's an incredible piece of work it's beautifully written and there's a lot in there for people to learn as well because I think it's great when you come from a place of skepticism as you did and work through a process till you came to the only decision that you could come to that consciousness survives what we call death. Mm. Just go back a little. You spoke about, and I know that you're a Buddhist, and you spoke a little bit about Zen, the practice of Zen for 10 years. And there might be some people, including myself in part, who isn't 100% sure, who aren't 100% sure of what the Zen practice is. Could you explain that a little? Well, at its most simple, I mean, Buddhist is a quite a sort of confounding um, practice because on one hand, it can be incredibly, uh, sound incredibly simple and be incredibly difficult at the same time. But at, at its simplest, um, for me, Zen was sitting, it was a lot of meditation. I did a lot of retreats. It was, it was you know, working with the sensei, sort of trying to find refuge to some degree in the Dharma, which is, you know, trying to just put the principles of Buddhism of compassion, uh, of loving kindness, of presence and mindfulness into practice. So I never was a formal Zen student, but I used to just practice it. I would go and sit on, um, you know, on retreat and go sit uh, for the Sunday gathering each week uh, and just try to incorporate sort of mindfulness into. I found that when I actually did sit on my cushion 
for half an hour or so each day. But just in myself, I was a calmer individual, which I'm sure also benefited other people. That's what our sensei used to say, we sit for others. So, um, yeah, so I wasn't, like I said, I wasn't a formal student. I just practiced Zen. I just practiced meditation and, um, you know, retreats and, and just did my best to try to live to those sorts of principles that I heard the sensei talk about and that we sort of try to embody. And that must have been very helpful also. I mean, I'm assuming it was helpful when you were a war correspondent. No, God, no. <laughs> when you're a war correspondent, well, I mean, in as much as you want to be very, very alert and very present, you know, with each step you take, because, you know, uh, you're, you're sort of on patrol with all of these soldiers and you have to be have your wits about you all the time. It's a very different sort of sense of being present, but it's really definitely about being present. You have to be very careful where you put your feet. You know, you uh, one soldier gave me a tip very early on when I arrived just put your feet exactly the same places as the soldier in front of you because if he didn't hit an IED you won't you know so it's a different type of presence yeah but presence nonetheless yeah gosh interesting and you speak in the book and you speak now about your continued relationship with your fiance and Mm. I think that's one of the most beautiful things that I've ever read Mm. obviously as a medium myself, I know that life goes on and there is no death. But to know that you can have a continuing and beautiful relationship which grows even now, even though your fiancé is in the next realm, mm. that's really beautiful. Can you speak a little about that? Yeah, that comes up. A lot of people ask me about that. And, um, I, and you know, there's. I did try to, at one point, address in the book some of the sort of superstitions that by inserting some scenes where people came at me with sort of these lingering superstitions about, oh, when somebody dies, you have to let them go or you're holding them back or they're, you're going to, they're going to get lost or earthbound or some other, all these sorts of things. Um, what I had done also, and was, as you know, in the book, I did an awful, I included sort of little overviews of a lot of the reading and research I was doing too, because that just as journalist at the time, you know, going to find people to interview and doing research was sort of my go-to way of understanding anything. So um, I did do quite a lot of reading and I did do some summaries, you know, or mention some of the things I was reading and why in the book. Um and I did that because I really, it really helped ultimately. So yes, a lot of people have asked me about that. And uh, it was something that was very, very important to me to convey very accurately in the book, which is like why I said I decided in the end to write a nonfiction book, but to really try to make it quite creative, um, to try to really share the, as you said, the senses and the sounds and the feelings and the imagery and the experiences of it to draw people into that so they could understand these things so that they could experience what I experienced. Because we hear all of the time people talking at people. It's like journalism 101, journalism school 101, show, don't tell. That's the that's the number one rule, show, don't tell. And that's what I tried to do was show the relationship, not just tell people how it could or should be um, and so I showed it as it was unfolding and as it was growing in the hope that people could understand how these relationships can continue better and one of the things is that um, 
and I wanted to be very careful about this, is I ran into a lot of people telling me, oh, I'm holding him back, or my grief is harming him, or he's earthbound, or some all of these things. But because I had my default position on anything when I don't understand it is to sort of interview people and research things. I had done an awful lot of background reading on where these ideas came from, you know, the ancient sorts of religions, the indigenous religions, the burial practices that these emerged from. I'm actually doing PhD looking at a lot of this stuff at the moment. And it really stood to me. But when I ran into other mediums who hadn't been properly trained or properly educated and they started uh, kind of spouting a lot of these old sort of superstitions, just passing them from one to the other down the millennia without ever really challenging the veracity or the plausibility of these things. Um, it, it was definitely a huge thing for me to have to try to deal with. It was very harmful. And I really wanted to include it in the book, which I did some of those scenes to help people. Because now in my mediumship practice, I get a lot of spouses coming to me being told these things. And it's very upsetting when you're when you're bereaved. So that was the first thing that was very important for me to really challenge and to show people how it is and to show really how these relationships can continue, but they need to continue in a healthy way. And that's key because on the other end of the spectrum, I've come across people who spend their entire day looking for signs, wondering, oh, is that something touched me? Or was that, you know, it was that sort of gust of wind across my hand, uh, you know, and they spend far too long sort of obsessing about um, are they seeing signs or not? And when somebody is very deeply bereaved, that's understandable. But over time, we have to learn to recognize what's a sign, what's not a sign, um, how we recognize. I mean, for me, it became different because initially, because I didn't know I had the mediumistic faculty, um, I was seeing a lot of external signs out there. But um, for me, they weren't subtle. Like my friend Roisin at one point in the book described them as burning bushes, I mean, they were very in your face, you know, because there was no way I would have, if a butterfly or a cardinal landed on, on the table or, you know, was there all the, a rainbow appeared in the sky, I would never have, a, have a believed that, oh, that's a sign from, I would, that, I would never have been able to do that because I didn't have a, I couldn't, I didn't have a belief in these things. And so very, very obvious and tricky things happened for me, which I talked about. Um, but when then it was in the book, it becomes a point where it's forced to, I'm forced to turn inward. When I turn inward, I actually start to feel the presence, you know, and that's when I learned how to communicate mediumistically. But for people who are not necessarily mediumistic, it is possible to maintain these relationships. But the challenge is to, first of all, grieve, because that's very important that even though your loved one is present with you in, and still continues to love and walk with you in spirit form, their physical presence is gone. And that has to be grieved. So the spiritual interdimensional sort of relationship is never going to be like the physical relationship. It's going to be something different, you know. And when people try to hold on to the past, that's where it becomes unhealthy. I think where you can be healthy with these things is recognizing 
that this is a <clears throat> this is a new stage or a new form of the relationship, and understanding how it can be in this new form, how we communicate, how it works. It's a learning process. It can be quite exciting, actually. But you have to be accept that it's something new and you have to really look forward with it. And to be able to look forward, you really do need to grieve what is not no longer present and then be able to celebrate and work with what is still present. And what have you learned, Karen, about the grieving process yourself in terms of length, how long it takes you to accept and make that let go, I suppose, of what was and embrace what is now? Well, one, the first thing I do know about grief is that nobody gives you enough time. That's one thing. Um, and grief is a very, very personal thing. There's no time limit to it. Um, it's going to depend on you, on your nature, on the relationship on the closeness of the relationship, on the sort of level of support that you have still around you. I mean, it's a whole very, very unique experience, the grieving process. And it needs to be honored and your pain needs to be honored. And I, it's a time when you need to be very, very self-compassionate because it's remarkable how many people give you a month, two months, three months, and gradually people start to fall away. You know, everybody's around for the first month and people, they start moving on with their lives, but you're still there in that, in that space. It takes takes a good long time. I mean, if you start getting into a state where you're actually, you know, a year later and you're not functioning or you're still very depressed, then you really would be advised to go see a grief counsellor. We really need to know where we need help because the friends can only be around for so long, you know. And the important thing is, is what feels okay for you. You really don't want to be in a protracted state of depression. And if you find you are, then you probably should go get some help. So other than that, it's going to take what it's going to take. The the key is, is, you know, how can you continue in separation and I, we never recover from grief that's a fallacy oh we get over it we never ever ever get over it we just learn to live differently and that's the thing it's accepting that we really need to learn to live differently now and if you have the belief system um that you're that consciousness survives death which i'm sure your listeners all have or they wouldn't be listening to this um then it's a matter of you know sort of enjoying that journey of trusting their presence and enjoying the journey of learning, speaking to them. I mean, they can hear our thoughts. My mother has since passed the spirit world. She even interrupts my thoughts. I, she interrupts. I don't even know she's listening. And next thing she'll chime in. Oh God, you know, so we really, this kind of communication is very subtle, but it's very mind to mind. So if you speak to your loved one, if you turn your thoughts to your loved one, they can feel your mind touching their mind and hear what you're saying and respond. Now you, if you're not mediumistic, won't hear that response in the same way they heard you, but they will find a way to let you know they have heard you. And they will find a way to let you know where this either, they will st- you'll start to find helpful people in your path or a sign in your path or a synchronicities. Synchronicities are real key when somebody's trying to help you. So it's really just a matter of 
continuing that. I do, you know, I sit in the power regularly and I do advise anybody if they want, you know, to work with their intuition. This is the language of intuition. So develop, even if you're not mediumistic, everybody is intuitive. So everybody can sit and learn to trust their intuition and learn the language of their intuition, which will help them immensely in being able to recognize the signs and synchronicities and responses of their loved one. So the idea that you often hear mediums going, oh, I hear so-and-so saying, well, people don't sit in the spirit world chattering in full sentences in your ear. They use the psychic faculties to communicate. And the psychic faculties are a combination of images and hearing sounds and pregnancy and, and um, you know, or phrases or, you know, and, and feeling above all, just, you know, feeling the presence, feeling an emotion, feeling... And it's a combination of these. This is the language of the spirit. So I would say to anybody, don't sit around expecting that your loved one is going to start chattering in your head like a full-on conversation. That's not how it works. So don't look to that. Look to these more subtle ways of and com- com- combination of senses, which is how the spirit world communicates with us. And just learn work focus if you want to do something for yourself really focus on learning to uh, live more intuitively and trust and understand your intuition more intuitively and that's what they'll be able to use to get a message to you that's really beautiful so karen you talk about trusting your intuition and how you know for the skeptics among us of which i am still one even though I work as a as a medium, I still have my sceptical side because like you, I like to try and test, try and test until there's no other explanation. But for those people who struggle with just accepting what is coming, how do they trust those intuitive feelings? How do they know what comes from the spirit world, their loved one in the spirit world, in the form of a symbol, a fragrance how do they how do they have faith and trust it's kind of like the million dollar question um, i think i'm asking you karen because through your book you did that process yeah. yourself you went from complete skeptic yeah to now a, a fully certified um spiritualist medium with a, a spiritualist national union Yeah. Well, I think, first of all, the intuition isn't just for learning to understand the spirit world. We really could do better in our entire lives if we just listen, lived more intuitively, just in our day to day things. We actually do listen to our intuition, I do believe, more than we believe. So more than we realize, you know, for instance, you meet somebody and you just have an uneasy feeling about them. You just don't take to them. Or you you meet somebody else and within a few seconds or even before they open their mouth, you just feel drawn to them, you feel comfortable with them. I mean, that's energy, that's intuition, that's energy. Your your energy and their energy is meshing or not. You know, um, you ever walk walk along the street and you feel, oh, this doesn't feel right. Anytime you get those sorts of feelings, that's your intuition. And so I think where we begin with this is just learning to pay attention to how we feel. You know, have you ever walked into a room and felt, oh, this is just beautiful. I could live here. I could decorate this whole, put a sofa in here and, you know, read a book. And then you walk into another place and you feel, I walked into an apartment the other day and I, I swear somebody had been 
manically depressed in there for like 50 years. I mean, you could feel it, the weight in there. So the thing about intuition, we can start by just paying attention to how we feel in our daily lives. And the more we, and that's the key, the more we feel, you know, because we're always like rushing to try to get somewhere. We're always racing around like little hamsters in our heads. But if we can actually pause that, and meditation is great for helping with this. If we can pause on that and just try to, first of all, stay present, just be present. You know, I'm here talking to you right now. I'm not thinking about all the other things I have to do later. I'm not thinking about anything else. I'm just here and you and I are focusing on a little comment, nice little conversation we're having here. And that's it. Um, and that's we're just present in this moment and we'll be present in the next. The more you can bring your awareness back to the present. I think this is where Buddhism helped me quite a lot. The more you can bring your awareness back to the present and just be present. What happens then is, first of all, that has the extra benefit of sort of reducing anxiety because anxiety is always future focused. When we feel anxious, it's because we're in the future, right? If you, start, if you feel anxious and you pause, what am I anxious about? It's always something that hasn't happened yet, right? It's always a fear of something that's going to happen. So that means we're not present. We're anxious because we're not present. And the anxiety is robbing us of our sort of intuitive understanding because we're so caught up in something that hasn't happened. If we feel guilty, we're always in the past. I'd say we probably spend most of our life either guilty or anxious because you know, we're never in the present. So if we can really learn to... And yoga and meditation is beautifully helpful with this. Um, just to really be aware of what we are doing right now in the moment or go for a walk. And instead of just walking and, and ruminating on the walk, walk and pay attention to just what's in front of your eyes, what's under your feet, the sound of the pebbles, the, the sound of the breeze, all of these things. That's the first step. Be present. Because as soon as we're present, then, then we can become aware of how we feel in a given moment, once we can pause to become aware of how we feel to a living person, to the presence of somebody that really makes us uncomfortable or the presence of somebody else that we really feel good with, then we eventually can become more present and more sensitive and more intuitive to the um, invisible energies around us, to the to the people and the energy that we can't see. Does this make sense? Yes. It's the simplest thing in the world. You know, but it's very difficult to do. We have to be very mindful to do this. Um, but the more we we can become in that, and then what will ha- happen then is you'll start to find that you proved right. Somebody you felt very uncomfortable with, you hear something about later, and you realize, oh, I had a very that was a very good reason to feel uncomfortable with them. And then you get validation. My intuition was acting. Your intuition is always right. We just need to listen to it. We don't actually listen with our ears. We listen with our heart. We listen with our feeling. That's the language of intuition. And this will help. This helps then to be more sensitized to other energy, to you know the presence of loved ones. And that's really, I would say, the first step. You know, so although I say I was an absolute skeptic, I do feel that the fact that I had put in so many years of meditation or just to be present with no belief in anything other than, you know, Zen is like when in Zen you die, you're reabsorbed into the cosmic universe. There's no reincarnation in Zen Buddhism. That's Tibetan Buddhism. So Zen, you die, you're done. That's it. You're back. You're away back into the ocean. So I had no uh, beliefs at all, but I do feel that, 
having, and I hadn't meditated for a few years before this happened, but having done that for so many years, I do feel that just did help me become more mindful, which I do feel was what sort of got me started, got it, got it all kind of underway. That and the, and the burning bushes, you know. Yes, uh, the big symbols. The big things. The other thing you had, uh, you had mentioned was how do we realize it's our loved one? And this is something I've, t- I've talked about a few times before is, you know, with, and I say this in the book, as you know, people are saying, oh, he might send you a butterfly, he might do this, he might do that. And I thought, have you met this guy? Like this is the last thing in the world he would do. And if he did do that, I would never recognize him in that, you know? And I, I feel that a lot of people put themselves through an undue amount of stress by reading books or websites where they list Here's the symbols you will see from your Find a white feather, <laughs> a butterfly. These or the, you know, the, the red cardinals or the butterflies, the rainbows or whatever. Yeah. And I'm not saying those things don't happen. Like, obviously they do. But I think what's more important is to also pay attention to the personality also of your loved one. Like some people come and they say, Somebody's always getting pennies. I've never seen a penny. I'm like, well, why would you want to see a penny? Why would they give you a penny? You know, does that, is that consistent with, like my father now, most, you know, my father's since passed. And most mornings I'll wake up. And as I'm in that sort of hypnagogic state, the other thing too is the hypnagogic state is the great state for being sort of between waking and dreaming for loved ones to pop in uh, images or whatnot, you know, I found my father will always show me these little emojis, smiley emojis, which I thought, that's the bizarrest thing. My father wouldn't have even known what an emoji was, you know. But when I was clear, clearing the house out, when they had to, after they passed me to clear out the house, I, in, in the top drawer beside his bed, when I was clearing out the bedrooms, um, I found this little red love heart with, a, with an emoji on it, you know. And I went, oh, that's it, you know. And Aww. But now, sometimes I might just sit down to meditate and, and there's and all, sort, all sorts of variations on, on emojis will pop into my head. It's not just a, you know, otherwise I would just, oh, that's just me, recall. All sorts of variations. So that's my dad just popping in to say hi, you know. Um, and so there's all sorts of subtle ways. But like I say, it's like, I think people put a lot of stress on themselves thinking that they need to find certain things. Instead of just saying to their loved one who can hear them, Show me something so I know it's you. And then something will come along where you go, ah, that's them. That makes sense. It's a two-way conversation. It's not just, you know, the thing is people don't realize their loved one is present and can hear their thoughts, can feel their thoughts touching their mind. Because you talk in the book about your fiancé. Can we give him a name? His name is Johan. Johan. You talk about Johan talking to you from the spirit world and he will put, rather than showing you symbols all the time, he will sometimes put a thought into your head or a phrase or an image of something, which will then go on to mean something later in the day or the day after. Well, he didn't, he stopped showing signs once I got it because signs are, signs are external. You know, anything that you feel, sense, or see in your mind is an internal communication that's a mediumistic communication. Seeing a red cardinal or a butterfly or a rainbow or a penny or a feather or whatever, those are signs that are external to everything. You didn't, you know, so that's the, that's the difference in the definition. So once I 
um, learned to, once I accepted that this was actually real, this was happening, then the communications started gradually to become mediumistic communications. They became mind-to-mind communications rather than stuff out there in the world. And um, what he would almost, he would often do is these, and I don't know if everybody gets this, but this is what he would do, is these little um, sort of almost like precognition things where I would wake up in the morning or I would talk to him and he would show me something in my mind. It would make absolutely no sense to me. And then later in the day, I would see it. So I think one of the things I talk about is I woke up one morning and I saw a half of a lizard's head and a fishbowl. And I was like, what on earth is that? You know, but then later I was down in the subway and I saw a poster of Rango and he's there as the little lizard holding the fish, you know, and I thought, oh, that's it. And what I what what he was showing me was that he's not just there in the morning or on my cushion when I'm focused on him or I'm trying to communicate with him. He's actually also with me later seeing these things with me, because as we know, there's no time, right? There's no time in the spirit world. And so it was made me realize, oh, it's not just when I light the candles and burn the incense and sit down and try to arm my way into a communication with him, that this is an ongoing communication, that he is there all the time seeing what I see, you know. And that was it was just his, I often describe it as like, I, I, I think I said it to him at one point, I feel like I'm a three-year-old that you're trying to, teach by example that was what it was like and so I had a very good teacher in him um, in showing me these things and um, you know and also as you know and I won't I don't want to get into too much detail give the whole book away and take all the suspense out of it there were also things where he sort of saved my bacon you know where something weird would happen I would go okay I'm I get it and I would go go back home close the door you know stay out of trouble and so um he helped me find an apartment, you know, which was a whole big, very elaborate, um, which is not an easy thing to do, find a good apartment in New York City. Um, but it was a very elaborate sequence of events. And the thing was, I had learned to just take it, listen, listen, you know, listen to what he's saying in the language he's saying it. That's important. And Johan, did he, before he passed away, did he, um, what were his beliefs around this topic? None. None. Right. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I was like, it was the two of us, you know. Uh, and I think I said that in the opening of the book. He just he didn't believe in his soul. He didn't believe in anything, you know. But he was very, very smart, very technical and very creative. And so he used these things. So if I started noticing, for example, because he was he was like really... He was very artistic, so he tended to, sh- to use clairvoyance quite a lot. So, you know, it's probably he's more comfortable with it because it's so visual. But um, he was also a real techie, techie, you know. He was the first one with every gadget, you know, and all the rest of it. So when weird things started happening with electronics, it made sense to me, oh, that's him. Now, that would make sense to me more than, you know, a feather or a rainbow or whatever the case may be, because that's the sort of thing he would do. You know, and this is what I say to other people, you know, don't just go by the textbook, trust your loved one, trust your intuition, begin to work on trusting your intuition. That's your job. You know, nobody can do that for you. You have to, and we've talked about this already, you have to learn to trust yourself 
and trust your own intuition. And that's your responsibility. You need to work on that. They're going to be working on their whole thing. And then work with them, talk to them, work, you know, learn these things. It can be quite, it can be super entertaining. It's, you know, it's, it's very exciting time learning a new language with your loved one, you know, that you've probably been with. I mean, somebody who's been with somebody for 30 years, my goodness, they know them inside and out. So stop looking at the lists, start talking to them and listen to them. I think that's one of the most beautiful things in your book as well. Well, there are a lot of beautiful things within it, but one of the things that stands out also is your learning to communicate with Johan and then the different ways in which that progressed and then the beautiful intimacy that started to evolve and continue, presumably up until now, and how that relationship progressed and the love was felt so strongly and in such a different way than it would could possibly have been expressed had he been here in the physical form. Yeah, absolutely. Because when you're in physical form, you're always in separate bodies. No matter how intimate you are, you're still in separate bodies. But when one is in spirit form and when you learn, which I did over time, to be very to be able to really touch that power and to to really um, expand my own energy and sort of almost in an, in a trance-like state to be able to sort of step out of it in a way. Then we're able to we're able to learn to blend on an energetic level, which was just which is phenomenal, and it just you know the promise it 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 offers for life in spirit form is just beautiful, you know. So it sort of makes you think of like life more like a holiday. Well, I'm only here for a short period of time, and then I've got that to look forward to. So let me make the most of it. You can really just. You know, I, I don't like to spend too much, uh, you know, people always ask me, what's it like in the spirit world? And I'm like, well, I'm not there, so I don't know. What I do know is that if we were meant to fixate on the spirit world, we wouldn't be here. So we're here for something that is related to being here in physical form. And it's when we, when we can't experience that because of the, the, the laws of physics, um, it makes life a little bit more difficult, but that's the challenge. How do we understand and how do we see love in other people? How do we, you know, how are we loving awareness? How do we show compassion for people who really make the hairs in the back of our neck stand on end? But this is part of the challenge of being here. We can't know what somebody else is thinking, really. So we have to just have faith that in their essence of that person, they are loving awareness, no matter how horrendous they seem to be on the outside. That's a very, very difficult thing to do. We don't, we, there's, there's no challenge in that in the, spirit, in the spirit world because we won't have the barriers. The barriers are here. And so the lesson for this life is how do we live as loving awareness? How do we show compassion to all beings, even the ones that are intolerable to us? Because we can't see what's in their heart, we can't see what's there, but we have to trust that their essence is the is the essence of God, right? And we don't do it, and we get all up in arms. But that's the challenge of I feel being in the physical form. So for for me, an important uh, reason why I decided just to write that experience rather than try to go astral project for a year and write a whole book about the afterlife is that. If we, it's about presence. It comes back to being mindful. It comes back to being present. We are here right now for a moment. Why is that? We will be there soon enough. 
but we're already in eternity. Eternity doesn't start. I say this like over and over. Eternity doesn't start when we die. Eternity is now. What are we doing at this stage of our eternal path? And this is, I feel, where our focus should be. And so this is why I kind of tried to bring the focus back onto things like these relationships, things like, you know, all the things that I wrote about in my book, but also um, about the, the afterlife, no, being aware of the existence of the afterlife and being aware that love continues and that our loved ones continue to walk with us and that our loved ones will gather around us when it is our turn to go takes away an awful lot of that anxiety and fear and existential fear. And what it I feel should do is, is that the knowledge that the afterlife, that there is an afterlife exists, should help us live better and more mindfully now. And that's what I feel really the message ultimately in its biggest, most overarching form should be. Beautifully put, Karen, beautifully put. And so you're uh, on this lifetime physical quest of learning and uh, understanding and trying to make sense of things around you. You've got that very inquisitive journalistic brain and uh, and thirst uh desperate quest for knowledge mm. and you went on you went on to do three certificates with the spiritualist national union yeah and now you're writing a phd you say yeah i'm just i'm just researching a phd i'm, I'm looking at um all of the cultural narrative around all of our concepts of ghosts you know so that's been quite an interesting learning experience as well when you start really digging into all of the different two three millennia indigenous beliefs and how we still carry them you know it's interesting stuff is that going to be turned into a book do you think oh i have no idea i'm so far away from finishing it i'll have to just wait and see what happens sure sure and so and so what's next for you you're you're working on this phd yeah uh well i have a i work now i have a private practice um private mediumship practice and and so i do private sessions there um with clients from wherever all around and um I also I teach as well and with COVID now I've been teaching online so that's been actually one of the advantages is that um students outside of New York City now have been coming so it's been an interesting mix and some interesting classes that we've been doing in healing and mediumship and inspirational writing in just expression you know and uh and in well, mediumship and healing mediumship mainly, and um, and some trance. I'm doing. I'm teaching some experimental trance classes. Just to, it's beautiful. I love trance. Just there's all different levels and you know of trance and but just being able to get so present and so focused and so connected is is just a beautiful thing. Even if you can only experience it for a few seconds. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. And your book is called Till Death don't us part where can people purchase it uh anywhere amazon barnes and noble uh book depository any major booksellers i mean amazon everywhere so it's probably the easiest place to go but also apple apple there's an apple book apple ibook go to amazon or google search it it'll show up i think pretty much anywhere thank you karen that's great and your website oh karenfrancismedium.com so if anybody wants to book a reading with you or or find out about the teaching workshops that you have coming up. That's where they go. 
On, and actually, actually on that website as well, and I do have record free recordings of two meditations. One is sitting in the power, and one is uh, the power of the of healing. And so they can sit if they want a sort of a bit of a guided meditation. They're quite short, only fifteen minutes long, I think, just to be able to start to have something to help them sort of sit. If they want to follow this intuitive development and this mindfulness, and have sort of a little voice to guide them along on this they can just go and download those they're free that would be wonderful and listen to that in your beautiful irish lilt thank you (laughs) very nice too and talking of which in your beautiful irish lilt you're now going to read us a short extract from your book so settle back everybody and just enjoy karen francis mccarthy reading from her new book till death don't us part And this excerpt from the book is from very early on in the book, just, you know, within a couple of weeks after I got the news that he had died. And a few odd things had started happening, which I was just confused about at the time. And then this came. I went to bed that evening with my iPad and scrolled for something on Netflix to distract me from the past. A floorboard creaked. A shiver ran up my spine. I peered into the hallway with the uncomfortable feeling that somebody was lurking in the shadows, but there was no one there. Later, having watched a few minutes of everything and all of nothing, I drifted off. My iPad must have continued to pour faint flickers of light into the room until the battery died and the world fell to silence, broken only by the burp of a bullfrog, the hoot of an owl and the heavy breathing of me sleeping. Creak. I jolted awake. The bed frame was groaning under a great weight. My heart raced. Someone had sat on the bed behind me. Someone big. Someone silent. Turn around, I told myself. I couldn't move. Turn around for its sake. On three. One, two, three. I flipped around. No one. I scrambled up, got tangled in the sheet, fell over, whacked my face on the windowsill and bounced back onto the floor. Pain scorched my head. Get up. My hands were shaking. I fumbled with the switch of the gaudy lamp. It flipped on. No one was there. No one could have gotten down those stairs that fast without a sound. I fumbled on the table for my phone to call 911 and then remembered it was in the kitchen. I picked up a glass Saratoga spring bottle by the neck and crept down the stairs, peering into the dark listening for any creak or rustle. No one could move in this house without the floors creaking. Except for the faint chirp of crickets and my own stressed breath, there was silence in every room, in every stairwell, the whole way down to the kitchen, where I found the windows closed and the doors locked. No one could have gotten out. Then again, no one could have gotten in. I slipped out onto the front porch and sat on the steps in a t-shirt and boy shorts, clutching the bottleneck with white knuckles, hearing nothing but the normal sounds of the night. After an hour of sitting out there in the dark, I decided I'd imagined the entire thing on my back inside. Still, I stood in the hallway for a few minutes, afraid to move, listening, hearing nothing and no one. This was so stupid. Four years earlier, I'd spent the summer crawling around in Iraq as an embedded journalist with the Stryker Division out of Washington, 
and the 210 Mountain Division out of New York, washing with baby wipes and eating MREs to get the worm's eye view of the war. I waded through the creeks and hunkered down with the guys during rocket attacks in Sadr City. I walked in the footsteps of soldiers in front of me as we navigated IED terrain. I'd been crammed into Humvees in 120 pounds of body armour and 130 degree heat as we rolled outside the wire to bullets pinging off the metal and the gunner spinning as M2 in every direction. Now, here I was, in rural Virginia, with a bruise on my forehead from imaginings in the night. Stupid or not, I didn't have the courage to go back upstairs. I wandered into the library the smallest and most defensible room in the house, and picked out a book called Classic American Decorating. I curled up in the throw blanket on the chaise and flipped mindlessly through the pictures. It was almost dawn before I was calm enough to sleep. As I began to doze, the air around me seemed to change somehow, growing warmer or softer, maybe. A feather-like sensation brushed my forehead and then both eyelids like little kisses that felt strangely familiar, but I couldn't quite remember why. Oh, that's so beautiful. The next morning after this, I got up, you know, cleared everything up, tidied everything up, felt like an idiot. And I went out and I was sitting by this little pond uh, under a tree in the garden when um, I started feeling little tugs in my hair. And I did remember that he used to tug you know a little if he was standing behind me he would like these little tugs on the back of my hair and as I was sitting under the tree I started feeling these and I thought I was caught on something and so I'll just pick the the scene up from here I shook out my hair to get rid of whatever was stuck there that I couldn't see and went into the kitchen to forage for snacks there were slim pickings except for a few oranges in the fridge I took a couple shut the door and swung around to come face to face with a large two-dimensional solid black figure standing in the doorway. I froze. It looked like a black hole I'd seen on TV with a perfectly crisp edge that delineated its dense dark form from the event horizon surrounding it. But this wasn't a black hole. It was crudely outlined and had no neck so that the shoulders and head were fused like a gorilla. But this wasn't a gorilla. It was a tall, broad man, six foot easily, silent and unmoving. And it wasn't just blocking the doorway. It had been lurking behind me while I rummaged in the fridge. It disappeared. Tap, tap, tap. Juice was dripping onto my feet and all over the floor. I'd gripped those oranges so hard I'd punctured the skin. My breath was shallow and my heart was still racing. I scanned the kitchen for an explanation. Billions of times a day, my brain created three-dimensional constructs out of two-dimensional images impinging on my retina. Neurons in my visual cortex made the third dimension appear, but not this time. The kitchen was bright, so it wasn't a trick of the light. I couldn't blame it on peripheral vision where floaters or fleeting black flashes often appear in tired eyes. This, whatever it was, was solid, stationary, in full frontal vision, and by no means fleeting. Karen, thank you so much for coming on Psychic Matters and giving us such an in-depth explanation of your own experience. And I will be recommending your book, Till Death, Don't Us Part, 
to all of my students and everybody I meet for that matter. <laughs> Thank you, and It's lovely to be here this morning. Well, that was Karen Frances McCarthy with her incredible and beautiful book, Till Death Don't Us Part, available at all major booksellers. Do go out and buy a copy. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Please, please, please go and buy it. Um, thank you, everybody, for being fantastic listeners. We're getting some great reviews in from listeners all over the world, and I cannot thank you enough for those. Please do keep them coming in. That's really wonderful of you to take the time to write an honest review because it does make a, a big, big difference to the podcast and the way it moves up the podcast charts. Uh, do come and join us if you would like to. We're over on the Facebook page of the Psychic Matters podcast. There's some interesting discussion going on over there about all things paranormal and uh, I'll be back with you in a couple of weeks time with another fantastic guest I've got two more beautiful interviews already done and lined up ready to to share with you so do do join us again in a couple of weeks time and in the meantime take care everybody and thank you for listening to Psychic Matters <laughs>